folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason, and today is a very exciting episode. We're talking to Dr. Stan Fortuna Jr. And Stan, Stan the man, as I like to call him, I, he did not give me permission to use that name, but I'm going to I'm gonna give it to him anyway because he is the man because what he did, he did the Go Big 260. It's a circumnavigation of the big island of Hawaii. It is 267 miles and he did it over 119 hours. Here's the kicker at the age of 75. And what's even cooler is this was his 116th ultra marathon or marathon. He's done 116 races at least of a marathon distance or greater. And he's from Michigan. He's joining us from Michigan, but he spent years living and working as a principal over in Hawaii for his school district. And so we're going to talk about that experience, how that came to be, what this whole experience training for was like, what it was like to achieve it. And it was just a heck of an interview, heck of a podcast episode and, and just a discussion. And I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot from him. He has a really cool write-up that I'll try to include in the show notes. This was a really exciting interview. I love folks doing this at that age too, because 75, that's a long way from where I am now. But if if I did this now, this would be one of the crowning achievements of my life. He did this as like a side mission just for fun after 115 other huge races he'd done unbelievable guy, but follow him. uh, We're going to link everything you need to go. He also is a big fan and supporter of the Hawaii Wildlife Fund, which we're also linking to in the show notes. Stan, thanks so much for joining us and telling your story. And it's my pleasure to present it to you now. Let's go ahead and dive in. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. You heard a little bit of Stan's story in the intro. Now we're going to introduce Stan the Man to the show. Welcome, Stan. How are you doing? Thank you, Mason. I am pleased to be here and honored and humbled in view of all the special guests you've had. I am just, I'm thrilled, frankly. Oh. This is the highlight of the week. <laughs> this is, good gracious. I did not, <laughs> man, this is awesome. I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm honored to hear that. We, I get to talk to some incredible people and I got one in front of me right now. I want to hear about this story. But before we do that, I want to hear uh, wh- where are you coming from today? It's nice and bright and looks looks beautiful. I don't know if that's ambient lighting or it, it looks it looks bright and sunny out. Well, unfortunately, I'm coming from the lake shore, Lake Michigan, and just got back from Hawaii with another little adventure. It's bright and cheery here in the dining room and nice weather finally. That's that's about it for now. Just very comfy. You know, what's funny is I've been thinking about Lake Michigan a lot lately because I, I listened to a podcast about the Great Lakes and my son, who's four, his favorite song right now, absolute favorite song. We listen to it 10 times a day. No joke. I mean, I'm not exaggerating. At least 10 times is The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald uh, by Gordon Lightfoot. And, you know, he (laughs) talks about all the great lakes in that song, but specifically Superior. But he mentions Lake Michigan a couple of times and it's just I hear it every day. So where are you about around Lake Michigan? That's a that's a big area. We're uh, located in Grand Haven, Michigan, which is directly west of the capital of the state, mid-Michigan. Just a, a real nice place to be in the summer and spring. That's one place I haven't spent much time, but I recently did a kayak trip in the Everglades. I'm, I'm in Florida. One of the guides, one of the guys I was helping, I guess, co-guide with, he spends his summers in Lake Michigan, in Mackinac, 
Island, mm-hmm. Upper Peninsula, and then he goes up to uh, Isle Royale for seasonal work as well. And I guess what is Isle Royale? Is that still in Michigan or is that Minnesota? It's still in Michigan, and it is absolutely a treasure that I have not experienced yet. Oh, wow. But it's, it's on the hit list. It's, it's on the hit list. Some people call that a bucket list. You call it a hit list. <laughs> I like that. I don't like I, I don't like to think about bucket lists. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for, uh, Obvious reasons. I'd prefer to think about hit lists. There you go, a hit list. I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill this thing. Well, speaking of that, I, I you know, you're in Michigan. I want to hear about, you know, the connection there to Hawaii. But tell us about what kind of household you grew up in, or, or were you outdoorsy, or were you adventurous? I know we're going to talk about this big run around Hawaii soon, but like, what, what were kind of some of those building blocks leading up to it? Did you take on these kind of challenges early on? No, as a matter of fact, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I actually grew up on the what we used to call the wrong side of the tracks and didn't have uh, options to do a lot of the things that uh, I can do now. Never really dreamed about those things that much. I was a, a student. And my big goal in life at that time was to play one sport on a high school team someday. Mm. And I actually did two things. Freshman football, where I was... Uh, Knocked around, unfortunately, I was not on the big side. And then senior year, I ran cross country, back of the pack, didn't know what I was doing and thought maybe I could make the basketball team. None of that worked out. But however, an interest in running uh, somehow surfaced uh, over time. As a matter of fact, uh, when I took a job as superintendent, assistant superintendent, my boss at the time did a little running. I said, well, maybe it'd be smart if I started running a little bit. If he runs, I should run, right? That actually led to a 5K and eventually 5K, 10K, and greater distances. So currently I do marathons or ultra marathons primarily. So what do you think it was about running that that stayed with you versus, you know, some of those other sports? Maybe just like the simplicity of it? I think the simplicity of it for sure. Obviously, very few people playing football in high school play beyond high school. So football isn't a lifelong sport, but running certainly is. There are a couple others, but the simplicity, you need a pair of shoes. And uh, we had shoes growing up. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't on, you weren't all the way on that end of the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> no, we were, we were close enough to uh, Kenny shoes to get some dollar ninety nine sneakers or something. But uh, we had shoes. I don't want to over exaggerate that, but it's such a easy sport to get involved with, and uh, I think that that happened. And as I uh, got a little bit older and got busy at work and so on, running is something that you can do at the drop of a hat, actually. Instead of going out for a three martini lunch, you can go out for a three mile run if you wish. Things of that sort. Honestly, I mean, it's the most, uh, one of the most efficient. You know, I, I like to ride my bike and it usually takes me, gosh, it feels like 20, 30 minutes to really start to feel the workout and, and, and feel good. And, you know, I, obviously if you're sprinting all out, it, it tires you out pretty quick. But with a run, I feel like by 20, 30 minutes, I'm done. You know what I mean? I'm like, you can get a really good workout in that amount of time. It is an efficient way to get your heart rate up and uh, get get that those endorphins flowing. So how, when were you picking up running? How early was this? And was this kind of, you know, because running, I mean, it's it's, I feel like gone mainstream in the last, I mean, it's taken 50 years, but it, 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 it was a totally different beast or still kind of underground even early on, I, I just listened to the uh, memoir of Phil Knight, who started Nike, and he talked a lot about like the development of the popularity of running in that book, and it was really fascinating to hear about. 
Did you see that yourself? I found it something that just occurred gradually for me. As I said, shorter distance to longer distance, got involved with a few people uh, who were interested in the sport. And uh, we would take uh, weekend trips here or there for marathons and trail runs and all outside the work environment. It just happened uh, organically or naturally, I'd have to say. You know, you talk about the distances, you start with a 5K and that's, and it goes up to marathon. How early on were some of these, these like ultra distance events kind of coming up? Did you think that was crazy even? Because like a lot of, for a lot of marathoners, they have no aspirations of going beyond that or, you know, doubling that for like a, a 50 miler or so. Um, but you're, when you're talking like multiple hundreds of miles, that's, that's insane. Well, insanity isn't all bad. And uh, <laughs> what, what happened was that after having done a few marathons, a group of us heard about a trail run down in Texas. And living in Michigan at the time, this was going to be a little bit of an adventure and uh, went down. But it was a 50K, a little bit longer than a marathon. Mm-hmm. And I did some simple arithmetic and said, oh, trail run, six more miles, added in a few minutes. Well, it turns out it was a little more difficult than than that. And eventually 50K, why not a 50 mile and why not 100K? It just kind of happened in that way uh, for me. And I think that happens in that way for a lot of people. Although one of my crew, who was a, a good athlete in high school, is training right now for a 50K down in Mexico, which I'm planning to do also late in October with the Taramahara Indians, matter of fact. And she has never run even a marathon or a half marathon. So you can pretty much do what you want to do if you're planful, thoughtful, and do what's required. But there's an example of somebody who didn't go the gradual way and she's going to be ready, totally ready. You know, sometimes I find that that's just just kind of more fun to just dive right in to see if you got it. And then I, I, sometimes people that do that, they'll, they'll go for the biggest event and it's successful or not. And they, maybe they want to do it again, but it, a lot of times then they start dialing back and kind of going the other way where it's like, I know what it's like to do that big trip or that huge experience. Now I want to kind of experience the 10 K's and the five K's and, and, mm-hmm. and keep that fire burning that way until the next big one. I've seen that a lot too. That was kind of my experience with with cycling. But what took you from Michigan to Hawaii? How, how'd you end up there? Because I'll be honest, down in Florida, a lot of people in Michigan end up here. <laughs> so what made you go straight west instead of down south? Well, now that Florida is the, the free state of Florida, Florida, I'd be tempted to move down if I could. In response, <laughs> in response to your question, I uh, had a job offer that I uh, couldn't refuse, a superintendent of schools and had a chance to go work with Hawaiian children in the Kamehameha schools and build out a campus and so on. And in the process, learned so much about me, myself, the culture. And that was part of the big draw to go back to Hawaii for this particular event, as a matter of fact. Wow. But I was, I was there for work purposes. And when anyone lives in Florida or any other place and you hear the word Hawaii, you tend to think, most people tend to think perpetual vacation, right? Well, <laughs> Some of us actually work, <laughs> work there. <laughs> tell us about, yeah, tell us, let's talk about that a little bit. What is it like to work in a place that, you know, I don't, I don't know the percentages, but I'd say most people come for recreation and for vacation. What is it like to live and work there? What, what's kind of maybe something that you found surprising about being there all the time? Well, initially I found it surprising how easy it was to make the transition 
on many levels, including financial. Uh, we lived on the big island of Hawaii in the town of Hilo. Fairly reasonable expenses and so on, but we were there for 11 years. Just had a, a great time. Family reasons uh, brought me back to Michigan. Otherwise, I uh, might still be there. But at the time, I was hoping a couple of my kids would move out to Hawaii, and they decided not to because both of them met women, and they ended up staying in Michigan. <laughs> oh, yeah. They didn't want to follow dad. <laughs> I mean that's that's a heck of a uh, offer though for, for for someone who's who's courting somebody or dating like hey let's let's move to Hawaii my my pa- parents are out there that sounds pretty exciting actually. <laughs> well, I was willing to pay the airfares and everything. Actually, uh, we did that, and everybody came out, but not to live. Not to live, just to visit. So not to live, just to visit. Oh man, you want to hear a crazy story? We've got a there's there's a guy we had on the podcast. I think earlier this year or late last year, Cyril Deramo. Daramu, you might, I don't know if it was news there or not, but he kayaked, kayaked, not ocean row or anything, kayaked from San Francisco to Hilo over the course of 92 days uh, a few years ago. It might have been two years ago. I don't know when you came back, but that's the only other time, or that's the most recent time we've talked about Hilo on this show. Well, it's uh, it's funny you should mention Cyril. It's coincidental, but there's no <laughs> such thing as a coincidence, but... Uh... <laughs> I know exactly where Cyril came into Hilo, and uh, one of my crew was with me, and she had been interacting with him, uh, text, email, whatever, and was familiar with what he had done, and I was not familiar with what he had done, but what he did was absolutely amazing, and I, I, I did look into it a little bit subsequently, but coincidentally, one of my six crew knows all about Cyril and knows wow. Cyril. <laughs> yeah, that's... Small that's... world. That, that was amazing. <laughs> Truly amazing. Unreal. I mean, just something that terrifies me to my core because he said he anticipated he goes every day for the first two weeks because of the you know the flow of the ocean pushing back I guess I guess it pushes back east um towards the shore he's like I'd have to paddle straight out 20 miles and I'd know I'd lose 10 miles overnight while I slept and I just had to do that for two weeks and I'm just thinking imagine being out there for you know 45 days a month and a half and you're only halfway there. I mean, that is just <laughs> terrifying. I, I, I just one of the craziest things I've ever heard. He was he did he did a great job telling the story. So I'll have to I'll have to share that one with you and give it a, give it a, a listen. But so living in Hawaii, living in Hilo, finding the transition easier than expected. Were you were you able to explore Hawaii? While you were there, did you feel like, uh, or did, was your job just too demanding? I find that a lot too, especially when you take on like a leadership role. It's just so demanding that you you hardly have the chance to get out and explore this place while you're there. What what was your experience with that? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, your observation is a good one. It was very demanding job situation. However, on weekends, typically on Saturdays, I'd be able to do a little exploring. From time to time, we'd be able to go to the other side of the island, which was kind of a vacation for us. And we went to all the other li- uh, all the other islands with the exception of Ni'ihau, which uh, doesn't allow uh, non-Hawaiians on. Mm. And uh, so visit all the islands. They're all special. Love them all. I couldn't do all the exploring would have liked, but did did a fair amount of running and too much eating. And so uh, <laughs> weight pro, uh, 
went up a little bit. What, what, what were you eating bit. a lot of? What do they have out there that I, I've always heard? Spam <laughs> is big. Is it really? Spam is spam is delicious, but uh, uh, there's something called spam musubi, which uh, has spam in the center, rice, and so on. Uh, but uh, all of the traditional Hawaiian foods. The the real problem was we had a breakfast and lunch program at, on my campus, and there were two breakfasts and two lunches each day, depending on high school or elementary. And uh, I ate two breakfasts, two lunches, <laughs> and then I, at night I didn't stop either. So <laughs> by the time we returned, I was a little bit of a butterball, but uh, uh, was still running, still running, still still hey, and uh, keep keep yeah. keeping the legs fresh. <laughs> Keeping the legs as fresh as possible, absolutely. That is funny. So, so you, you, you know, this. I want to hear a little bit more about this role. Honestly, this uh, superintendent of a of a school district, right? And you said of, of native school children or native Hawaiians. Kamehameha Schools is a, a school that was established back in 1887, result of the the giving of Princess Puahi wanted to educate Hawaiian children because at that time the native Hawaiian population was dwindling. The late 1800s. Were, were a tough time for Native Hawaiians. She saw that and she was able to do something. And she was the last uh, descendant of King Kamehameha and had ownership of about three or 400,000 acres in Hawaii, including uh, Waikiki area and every place. And so it was set up as a trust and schools were started. And I went out to actually start a new campus on the big island of Hawaii because we didn't have a campus there for Native Hawaiian children, frankly. We have quite a few needy kids, but some kids that all of the kids who graduate are in very, very good stead. College bound, many, many, many of them. And But it was a, a real uh, intense experience and a very, very special time in my life. And kind of a culmination as far as, those, uh, as far as my professional life went. I mean, this is a huge question, but like, what did you learn about the Hawaiian people? Like some some major themes or what do you feel like you walked away from with that experience did having changed you? I don't know. Is there any just high-level thoughts there? I know those are really vague questions. There's at least one high-level thought, and that is a greater respect for family and our ancestors and the people that came before us. Not that all of us don't have some respect and so on, but I really came back with a heightened awareness of how important it is to connect with our past, teach our children to connect with their past. And um, that was probably the, the very biggest single thing. I, I, studied Hawaiian, didn't speak very well. Kind of interestingly, a school for Native Hawaiians, and I just uh, happened to be a Polish Catholic. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering, how did you get that job? <laughs> how did this happen anyway? <laughs> Polish Catholic, and our uh, commandment is associated with the United Church of Christ, which makes it all the more kind of interesting that I got the job. But that's, a, that's another story, but it was a perfect match. It was a perfect match. And when our campus opened, uh, when we first opened a, a few of the buildings, we built 32 buildings. It was a $500 million affair. So you can see why I got uh, got busy for 11 years. But uh, Jeez, yeah. I was accused of being uh, more Hawaiian than most Hawaiians. <laughs> and that's how I got the job. Because you, there's, there's something inside that uh, helps a, a person to connect. And not that everybody loves you or not. It was, it was just a very good fit. And that's what we all look for in life with our work and our activities. So it was a good fit. It's a good fit. And oftentimes that fit can surprise you who it is. You know what I mean? Maybe to run a native Hawaiian school, you take a, a Polish Catholic who it's like a, it's like a, you got that same spirit. You know what I mean? That it, it, It's all about feeling, you know, a lot of times I work in marketing and, and, and 
sometimes the people I don't expect to make the biggest impacts are the ones that do. And it's like, wow, what, what was it about them? And you'll learn over time to kind of identify that thing in people moving forward. And so it's not always the person that on paper is or isn't a good fit is going to be that. So it, it's interesting. So it said, you said connecting with your past was the biggest lesson you learned. Did, did you do that yourself for your own history or, or did you kind of dive deeper in that once you got back to, I guess, Michigan is when you, where you get, went back to? Right. I've started to dive, took a little dive. I haven't done all that I could to, to learn about my past, but that's in the works. But back to fitting in, and there is a tie-in to running here. I remember in my resume, which was a couple pages long, buried somewhere in the section, I happened to mention that I had run a Vermont 100-mile race. Now, how I squeeze that in, I don't know. But during one of the interviews, someone brought that up. and said, geez, that's even further than from Hilo to the northern part of the island. So everybody's got... It was kind of interesting because it helped create a, a tie with, with the people that I was talking with. It was just one of different things, but it was kind of an important inclusion to, to have there. And so I gained some kind of a little reputation as someone who liked to run. Interesting. And the kids thought that was amazing. So you like to run, use that as your way to, to connect. I want to ask too, you know, was, was the transition back to Michigan difficult after spending 11 years in Hawaii? No, not at all. Other than uh, winters being as they are. And uh, I prefer summers. No, we came, we came back for good reasons, cut the tie there, but I go back two or three times a year. Uh, I still participate in a uh, high school awards ceremony each year and uh, usually try to find another excuse or two to go back and visit and see some friends and do some things. Yeah, mm-hmm. there you go. It's like, ah, oh, it's work. It's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to go. <laughs> got to get back and work. I have to, I have to go to Hawaii. Yeah, I got to go. It's I got to go. That's, that's it's a funny. dirty job, but somebody has to do it. Somebody's got to do it. That's uh, I guess I'll go. I guess I'll make the trek. <laughs> I've yet to go to Hawaii, and so I'd, I'd love to make it one day. Tell us about this run. Tell us about the Go Big 260 circumnavigation. How how did this idea come about? That's literally 10 times bigger than a marathon. That's that's 10 marathons. And just seems kind of crazy, even for someone who likes to run, to take on something so big. What was kind of the the when did you get this idea? And what was it, what was the process of of beginning to make something like this happen? I had run a hundred miler 20 years prior and hadn't run anything of that distance in 20 years. So I thought, well, I'd like to do a, another 100-mile run. And I did. It was called the Go Big 100 from Hilo all the way to the west side of the island. So it was a 100-mile run, did it. It was successful. However, the race director, uh, Dr. Alex Barnett, also ran a 260-mile run all the way around the island, Go Big 260. What, was there a lot of people 20 years ago doing this kind of event? I, I just feel like a 100-mile race is really didn't have a lot of awareness then. Well, 100-mile races have been increasing in the last 20 years, but my second 100-miler was about three years ago. Okay. After I was already back, went back to do that, saw that they had a 260, and that was that sounded so insane. How could anybody possibly? I mean, it's just ridiculous. And it's not like a New York City marathon where you have 20,000, 30,000 people, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But, uh, uh, but it sounded so insane. And I started training seriously right after the other hundred. Uh, I have a coach, Rugged Running, uh, Michelle Yates and Celinda Heinel, headquartered in Colorado. They helped them. But however, what I really got it going was getting a crew together. I had one person who was willing to commit in February or March to crew the following December. 
And that really motivated me to, to get on with it. I had a great program. There's strength work, nutrition, you name it, uh, doing everything. Because I realized in my demographic, it wouldn't necessarily be easy running 260 miles around the big island of Hawaii, right? I don't think it's easy for anybody. <laughs> Fair and well, fairness. <laughs> So did everything and uh, eventually I uh, was able to assemble a team of six people who went with me. Just tremendous, tremendous people. And their one goal was to get me to the finish line. Same person that I mentioned who knows Cyril pretty well also said, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And I got so motivated. One of the things that we used kind of as a theme for some of this was Teddy Roosevelt's Man in the Arena speech, which you might be familiar with. Oh, yeah. And many of your listeners are, are familiar with it, I'm sure. And my crew even read that the night before, just motivating to, to, to do rather than not do. And whatever the hell happens, that's one thing. But I went into it fully expecting to finish. It was a long 119 hours and uh, eight hours sleep during that time period. Just kept going and going and going and going. And it was uh, running a lot, walking a lot, hiking, uh, resting not too much. But that's how it all uh, got going was with that 100-miler and then finding that the time was right for me to really get intense and, and train and to see what you can do, see what your potential is. What did you do to prepare for that? Because obviously, you know, you, you still have responsibilities, things you got to do, but what, what, what does it look like to get ready for this? What are some of those benchmarks? You know what I'm saying? Because like, for a lot of folks that do multi-month trips or week-long bikepacking or through hiking, if you've got a job and you got responsibilities ahead of that, you can't necessarily test yourself to see know if you're really, really ready because you just you have all these other things you have to take care of in quote normal life. How do you ensure you're ready for something like that when you have just normal life to live leading up to it? Yeah, great question, uh, Mason. Uh, uh, for starters, I quit working when I left Hawaii. <laughs> that, that didn't that didn't hurt the cause, but uh, I do have responsibilities. Believe me. Yeah, well, I, you know, I I think it's a false sense of freedom sometimes because everybody I know that retires, and you know, I live in Florida again, so there's plenty of people that are my neighbors that are retired. They're busier than they've ever been. So. You know, sometimes you don't have less time to do stuff like this. Oh, Mason, Mason, I didn't say I retired. I said I quit working. Oh, okay. <laughs> My bad. <laughs> I got to listen a little better. I got to listen a little better. No, just uh, giving you a hard time. <laughs> Michelle Yates, Celinda Heinel, coaches for Rugged Running, uh, tremendous coaches. They know, knew everything about me. They know everything about me. They know what I was capable of. They designed an extremely interactive program for me. They were always there, literally on call 24 hours a day while I was going for the five-day jaunt. The program included running, I'm going to say every day of the month, except maybe three days. It would typically be uh, interval or speed work three days a week, tempo runs a couple days a week, and one longer run on the weekends, which that's what works out best for me. There was periodization and blocking it off, so it gradually built up. But it was something that would have been pretty hard for me to do on my own without that kind of guidance because I, I tend to uh, overdo things sometimes. Injury is a risk, and uh, they're very sensitive to that. So that was extremely helpful. And through the course of the year, fully came to believe I was going to finish it, period. Were there any setbacks in, in preparing? Any injuries or nagging issues or just anything pop up that was just maybe cause you to say, I, you know, is this on the table still? 
not uh, nothing that caused me to think that uh, I'd have to uh, switch directions on this or wait another year or what have you. Nothing of that magnitude. I was fortunate in that regard, and there's a, a strong emphasis on uh, health and safety with my coaching staff, and they are real, real careful about that and very sensitive to backing off when you need to back off. And mm-hmm. that, again, that's hard for uh, some of us to do, but sometimes we just need people telling us what to do. Going into this, what were some of your worries or some of your biggest concerns, whether it be your body or mindset? I, I, I don't know. What do you, what, what was kind of on your mind? On my mind was simply this, just uh, keep going. And when I had to rest, stop and rest. But I, I didn't have great concern about circumnavigating the island. I, I remember something that uh, uh, the great Ann Trazen, who was perhaps the greatest ultra runner ever, male or female, won Western states 14 or 15 times, uh, was asked the question by ESPN, well, how do you do it? How do you, how do you run that fast? How do you run that long? And she said, I run to the next tree. Hmm. I run to the next tree. So I wasn't thinking the whole time of all the way around. Just when was I going to see my crew next? We had a, a crew of six people paired off and they rotated. So they got to get some rest in as well. And I always knew when I left the crew vehicle that uh, I'd see them in an hour or two, whatever we set up. And so we just went in segments uh, in that fashion. Run to the next tree. I love that. That's, that's, that's a good lesson for life. You know, just don't, don't look too far down. Just, just get to that next tree. Well, you can credit to Ann Treason for that. I don't, I don't want to take credit for that one. <laughs> look her up, everybody. If you look her up, she's amazing. Yeah. If, and, amazing. and if I'm, and if I'm reading this right, she, she's been on, she hasn't been on our show, but she's been on a tough girl podcast, which Sarah Williams is a, a friend of the show. She's been on a handful of times, the host of that podcast. So check out Ann, Ann Treason. Ultra runner, one of the greatest, not the greatest of all time. Well, take us through, take us through those first couple of days, man. 119 hours. That's, that's a, that's almost a week. You know what I mean? That's, that's a work week almost of, of just being out there doing this. T- take us through day one and day two. What was, what was going well? What, what, what was working? You had a great team with you. It sounded like. Well, after a while, uh, I lost, didn't exactly lose track of days, but didn't think of my time in terms of this day, the next day, the next day, but got started in Hilo, Hawaii, headed south. I knew the territory and having lived there 11 years, I was familiar with really the entire course. So there weren't surprises that way, but first part of the course included a gain of about 4,000 feet, 5,000 feet in the first day. And so you just slow down a little bit, keep going and see your crew and eat and drink. Again, all kind of in a prescribed fashion, but what we were really aiming for that first day was uh, midnight because the race started December 31st. And I thought to myself originally and then too, wouldn't it be great to ring in the new year in Hawaii, running an ultra race in the dark, looking up at the stars. Now, how good is that? That, that, that is really awesome sauce. And I had thought about that even before the, the 100 mile run. Uh, so I rang in the new year that year too, <laughs> in a similar fashion, but uh, the crew, the entire crew met 10 minutes before midnight and somebody brought a six pack. I had a half of a can of beer. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. But uh, to celebrate, that was a goal for the first day. After that, I'm, I have a little trouble thinking of which, what I did on which days, but we, we went uh, up to Hawaii uh, Volcanoes National Park area. 
that's where uh, we had, had the climb and then just kept going, kept going and rested here and there. Uh, eventually, uh, we closed in on Kona and that's where uh, past the 100 mile mark. And, and Kona is the resort side of the island. That's all, all fine. But I remember uh, coming into Kona and one of my crew members, Sue, who actually paced me for over 100 miles of this event, believe it or not. And there's a whole other story about Sue, which we can get into. But uh, in any case, I remember we were coming down uh, one slope going into Kona and we were just, uh, she had Spotify on and she said, what music do you like? And so we started singing and she's kind of dancing. I wasn't dancing, but we were both singing and just having a really good time. And there are a lot, there are other moments like that, but that was a, that was a biggie. I remember in Kona itself, it was the middle of the day. It was getting hot. A lot of people around. Uh, there were even some people holding up a sign that I didn't know. <laughs> they were friends of a friend, and they were following it on Facebook. We had oh, this set up both, as a yeah. live. You didn't know them, but they were they were cheering you on. Yeah, my new best friends. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> uh, Dr. Jasmine, one of the crew, uh, broadcast live each morning, once or twice a day, kind of updating people in a two or three minute mini podcast or mini broadcast. Yeah, It was so hot that we made a change in thinking there that uh, it might be better for me to get in the crew vehicle, sleep in there for an hour during the hot, uh, the heat of the day, rather than uh, lose too much energy running through Kona and past the mid eighties weather. So yes, they kept the crew vehicle on with the air on. I was able to sleep for about an hour, cool down and then continue on. And so there are a lot of strategic changes that were made along the way. We passed Kona took quite a while, it seemed, to get up to Kohala area. And there's a small town called Havi, H-A-W-I, Havi. One of my crew is extremely great in adventuring, outdooring, you name it. There are a couple places you can turn to go to continue. The, and I was convinced. I was absolutely convinced we needed to turn at this one intersection that said Waimea, because we were going to Waimea eventually. And my pacer... Steph said, no, we don't turn here. And by that time, I was so damn tired and not acting goofy, but just really, really tired. I said, I don't want to go an extra step if I don't have to. She says, we got to keep going. And I said, no, the sign says, why may I? We've got to turn here. She was on the phone, got on the phone with the other crew, and they're trying to convince her to convince me not to turn there because I was pretty stubborn. I just stood there. I said, we got to go. Finally, I followed my crew's advice, and they were right. Stan was wrong. And uh, <laughs> Boy, you got uh, that happens too, all too often. I had a good, <laughs> I had really, really had a good, good crew. They, they were all leaders. They knew how to handle me, deal with me. <laughs> and they're all nice people on top of it. So we didn't take the wrong turn. We went the correct direction. Eventually got into the Kahala Mountains in that part of uh, Hawaii Island. There, we were running in the middle of the night, uh, started to rain a little bit, a little windy, getting cold. And it doesn't take too much uh, to get close to hypothermic, depending on wind and how drained uh, you are, fluids and what have you. And I got in the crew vehicle up there somewhere. I, I was just shaking, so I got warmed up, put on the clothing I had, but I did not bring running tights. Now, this is an important piece of information here. Because I, did, I just didn't think I was going to need them. Mm -hmm. Well, I was getting out of the crew vehicle, and I was just free. I have to have some running tights. So another crew member, female member, Sue, gave me her running tights <laughs> in the middle of the night. <laughs> We're not the same size, but I got, the, I got those on. They worked. 
for the next 12 or 14 hours. And so <laughs> wearing some woman's tights <laughs> made all the difference in the world at that point of the run. <laughs> the unexpected adventure, the unexpected things are what makes it an adventure for sure. Oh, well, it was, it was, it was around there too. Actually a little bit prior to that, that I took a pretty nasty fall and was bleeding. And, uh, and the crew person that was with me at that time knew a little something about stopping bleeding uh, more than I did. Among other things, fortunately, her dad was a doctor and her mom's a nurse. She wasn't, but she knew. Anyway, she got a small tourniquet going, cornstarch to stop some of the bleeding. Uh, I'm on blood thinner, so uh, you want to stop the bleeding. And she pulled out a feminine hygiene product and slapped it on. There we go. Stopped the bleeding and uh, it all worked. And so after less than an hour, we were on our way again. So it did. How about that? You, you were away. <laughs> All kinds of female products on you at the time. So who would have thought that would have got you through it? And speaking of bad decisions, well, those are good decisions, I guess, but I did make one bad decision. And if you have to edit all this out, that's okay. So I started experiencing a lot of chafing, which happens sometimes in marathons and ultras, and there are ordinary ways to take care of it. And we ran out of product they were using. I quickly grabbed out of the, the car some Tiger Balm. Now, those of you who are familiar with Tiger Balm will know that you want to be careful where you put Tiger Balm because <laughs> it can sting. Okay. And I mean, really, really sting. And, and, and that's, so, uh, that's some uh, like pain relief ointment, right? Right, right. Pain relief ointment. I ran a four-minute mile after that because I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> But I learned my lesson, so I learned a few things along oh, the way. Oh, gosh. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the, the mistake. Hey, if they only made one mistake, that's not, that's not too bad. Well, I wanted to ask about that. You mentioned some mountains and stuff. I, I, what was the elevation on this route? Because you're going around, like, basically the perimeter of the big island of Hawaii. Right. And, and you know, it, it's, it's a couple volcanoes that, that make up the island or why it exists. <laughs> what, what, was, what was kind of that? part of it like i don't imagine lots of ups and downs extreme maybe gradual you tell me lots of ups and downs but up to three or four thousand feet elevation itself in the kahala mountains and up about four thousand feet earlier in the race which i had mentioned so yeah some ups and downs but it all adds up the total elevation gain for the run was about sixteen thousand feet elevation gain so and that's that's significant Uh, that's significant Mm mm-hmm Jeez. Well, uh, you know, you know, take us through getting, getting a little closer to the finish line. Like what, what was, what were you thinking? What was going through your mind? Sometimes, you know, that last push is so difficult because it, it's hard to keep that mental focus as when you know, it's getting close to the end, like the end of any workout is just brutal. Those last few minutes. What was your experience with that? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, it's kind of, kind of interesting because we got to the last, well, we were about 50 miles away from Hilo. and said, ah, we've got this now. It's only 50 miles to go. <laughs> it was probably the longest 50 miles of my life, uh, for sure. And just plugged along. At one point, Hawaii, it was middle of the night, Hawaii police came and wondered, what in the world are you doing? And we explained that, but definitely slowed down. We didn't want to miss any of the turns. And at some point in there, I developed what's sometimes called the ultra runner's lean, 
where mm. the core kind of starts to give up and you're, you're leaning. And I've, I've, I've experienced that before. I've seen it before. I experienced prior or experienced it before much shorter distances, but having, having trained so well and doing all the things I did that it didn't really set in until probably in all seriousness to maybe 30, 40 miles from the finish. But uh, what the thing to do is that is to avoid anything that's going to be so debilitating that you can't finish. Mm. I was concerned about that, but I refused to show anybody any pictures of what I looked like at, I said, the last 20 or 30 miles, but it was a real definite lean. Also, getting even closer to the finish, uh, develop a bit of a pull or in a hamstring. Some pain set in, and I knew it was getting serious, and that could have ended everything if I couldn't keep moving. And so had to really nurse that, work through that, and it was it was not easy. But there were some uppers during that last 20 or 30 miles. One was infamous, famous Nancy Cabral, who runs Dalem Management. She was a friend and helped make all this happen, too. She came by unexpectedly at 2 in the morning, honking her car, waving like a wild woman, caught us off guard. At first, we didn't know who it was. And then uh, that kind of energized the crew as well as me because we were really, really shot. And she is so full of energy that it helped. A little later, later on, more humorous and energizing, but their car came by and two slightly inebriated women stopped and said, is there any way we can help? Is there any way we can help? <laughs> and they were slurring their words and what have you. But so there's some things that took our mind off, uh, minds off uh, the agony. And then the last uh, 10 miles, uh, the entire crew joined in, in cars. We had three, three vehicles and I always had a pacer with me at that point. Actually, I had a pacer with me the uh, for about 200 miles. We got there. We got there. We saw some feral pigs on the island. Oh wow! I didn't uh, know they were. And you don't you don't want to mess with feral pigs. I didn't know there were feral pigs in Hawaii. There, there are so there they can't be controlled. They're everywhere. Same thing here in the states, or the stateside, you know, or in the lower 48. It's just it's uncontrollable. We were talking about the finish line and getting close to the finish line, and and just what that. That feeling was like getting there is really challenging. You know, you start to give out. You, 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 you're kind of the last 50 miles can be or were the toughest. Take us through that experience of actually completing this. Last couple miles, yes, were difficult, but we had the crew vehicles lined up. There was a little hollering and shouting, but there weren't too many people. And it was uh, early, early in the morning, too. Once we got within a half mile helo, I knew I was going to make it. We saw what's called, they're named the, the Singing Bridge. And the finish was just the other side of the bridge. And I kept thinking, just got to get to the other side of the bridge. Just got to get to the other side of that damn bridge. Just got to get there. One of my crew was pacing me at that time. And I want to say she was dragging me, but uh, she was kind of holding my arm or holding my hand or what have you, uh, as funny as it may sound. But we got to the finish. I, I broke down uh, in tears, suited Jasmine and a few of the others. And as soon as that happened, uh, our good friend Nancy broke open a bottle of champagne, squirted all over us. We had a little bit of a party. I attempted the hula that's called the boy from Lapahoy Hoy, which for any Hawaiians who might be listening, the boy from Lapahoy is a, a real, real fun song. Well, to see me in that condition attempting to do a hula and I can't dance anyway, it <laughs> was uh, pretty pathetic. But we finished in that way. That was it. That was it. There weren't a cast of thousands there. Nor would there have been uh, people going to work early. It was about 5.30 in the morning, as it turned out. And some of them were wondering what we were doing by the side of the road. But uh, 
uh, a, a very intense time and champagne was flowing. So uh, why not? Why, why not? not? Why not? No, oh, I love it. That's awesome. Well, tell, tell us a little bit about why you did this. Was this for the Hawaii Wildlife Fund? The, were you raising money for that? Or how, how, what was that connection? We donated some money to the Hawaii Wildlife Fund, but it really wasn't a race designed to for that purpose in mind. So I only mentioned it because it's an important fund and people should pay attention to it if they wish. So the question why is always asked. And sometimes it's just to see what you're capable of, what God has given you, what can you do with it? How important is a goal that helps focus you? It doesn't have to be a, a crazy goal like this, but to have a significant goal. Teddy Roosevelt mentioned that, of course, in the man in the arena speech, how important it is to, to try. I am self-motivated and just got it in my head that I wanted to do it. And so there's not much more to it than that, which is kind of interesting. Mm. It's just, uh, it's kind of it's simple. The, the simplicity of it is, uh, as Henry David Thoreau said, simplicity, simplicity, simplicity in, in things we do in life. And uh, maybe that's part of the attraction of this crazy sport. It's, it's simple to, to do Simple in theory, but hard to hard to actually do for sure. Run two hundred and sixty miles, you know. It's not rocket science, but it's backbreaking. That's what my dad always said. It's like digging a hole, you know. It's 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 not complicated. It's just it'll tear you in half once you start to try to do it for hours on end. Uh, and and, and that, that shuts a lot of people down. It's uh, totally mental at that point. What do you think the experience taught you? And also, what is next for you? It could be. Something like this could be just personally, what are you interested in and, and what's kind of coming down the line for you? Let's finish with those two questions. What happened after, afterwards was kind of interesting, having uh, decided to take a vacation and going to Portugal to bike. And the fifth or sixth day of that trip took a significant crash and still recuperating, but expect a full recovery. Another outgrowth of that is that there are more adventures of this sort. I am interested in, in running adventures in particular. Just yesterday, Candace Burt set a new world's record, which has to be uh, verified. But she completed 200 consecutive days of running, 50 kilometers each day. And so I'm saying to myself, interesting. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> and I've been following her uh, ever since I ran in one of her races a couple of years ago. So there's always new adventures out there. I recently visited Hilo, Hawaii and visited the gym of B.J. Penn. Some of your listeners might know B.J. Penn was a, a world champion UFC boxer in two different weight class, weight divisions, as a matter yeah. of fact. And his new gym opened up. I knew B.J. from the olden days a little bit, but he happened to be there, met one of his trainers, uh, ended up taking a class uh, in boxing and a couple other things. And there's just so many. I had such a good time. But there's so many adventures and and. Uh, that may have opened up a whole area, not the boxing per se, but an eye opener. So it's kind of encouraging me just to keep an open mind too. However, I am looking towards cementing a, a goal for uh, 2023, a big goal. Later this year, a couple of us are planning to run down in Chihuahua, Mexico, the state of Chihuahua, running a 50K in the mountains where the Tarmahara Indians live. So adventures yes different people have around here uh, said yeah what you did really inspired me i'm going to do this i'm doing that i'm working out on this i'm training for this and there's some satisfaction in hearing that too that helping to motivate some other people to see what they can do 
200 days of 50 kilometers or more, maybe maybe we'll be taught. If you do that, we're talking to talk again. That, that's absolutely worth a, another episode. Keep us posted, but we'll heal up and uh, I hope you get to feeling better. And any parting words for listeners of just setting goals, doing big things, doing adventures? There's a lot of people that listen to this show that dream of doing something big one day, that, or they're, they're, they're out on an adventure right now, um, or they're just looking for a community of people who have crazy ideas like this and know that they're not the only ones out there that think about things that other people might find crazy or stupid. Well, I don't want to pull out the age card, but I'm, I'm going on 76. And this run was posted up, an ultra sign up and so on, the results. The excitement of doing something that very, very few people can do is, is, is energizing, of course. But I would encourage anybody just to try whatever they want. But they have to be willing to work for it. I remember BJ Penn, going back to BJ for a minute, came and spoke to our high school students when he was at the height of his career, which wasn't more than about 10 years ago or so. And he interacted with the kids extremely well. And uh, he kept emphasizing, if you want to get good grades, let's say, or learn, you're going to have to study. And the night preparing the night before isn't going to do it. Or studying just the night before isn't going to do it. And he talked about preparation and what he did to get ready for what he does. I'm sure some of your listeners have seen what he and others, other athletes of, of his caliber can do and do. And they prepare, they work, they work extremely hard. And most of them are really nice people. Dr. Stan, Stan, Mr. Fortuna, whatever we want to call you. Thank you so much for joining us on a adventure sports podcast and just, just telling us a little of your story. You know, it's hard to capture it all in an hour, but you did, you did a great job. This was awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mason. And it's, it's, uh, you're a real fun person to talk with. And uh, I wouldn't mind joining you on some adventures someday just because you seem to be like a pretty good guy. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done.